Everybody agrees that case studies are important. At Tech Emergence, case studies are certainly a big part of what we try to collect at techemergence.com slash case dash studies, looking at how businesses have adopted AI and business listeners and business readers are certainly always interested in that, but they may not always be capable of asking the right questions to determine, is this case study something that could transfer to my business? Is this something that we could use? And by the end of this episode, I hope that our business listeners will have a better sense of a more informed list of questions, a more informed set of factors that they should be looking into in depth when they're looking at an AI use case and determining whether they might be able to adopt something similar in their own business. This episode is brought to you by O'Reilly Media, who we've partnered with for this particular interview here. O'Reilly is running a large AI event in London from October 8th through 11th, and this is part of our work with them in partnership for that conference. Our interviewee is Ben Lorica. Ben Lorica is the chief data scientist at O'Reilly Media. He's been with the firm for over 10 years. He's a PhD in mathematics from UCAL, and he helps organize a lot of O'Reilly's events. In other words, he's responsible for educating business people on how to make better sense of AI, which I thought was pretty fitting. They do a lot of case study focuses at O'Reilly's big event. The big emphasis there is actually applying the technology, so they have to look at actual case studies. And I asked Ben, hey, from a PhD perspective, what are the details you wish more business leaders would look into when they're studying a case study, more questions they should be asking that'll help them make better decisions for their company. And that's what Ben dove into on this particular episode. So I certainly hope that there'll be a lot of good nuggets and takeaways. We sum it up pretty well at the end of the episode and it turned out quite well. So if you're interested in learning more about that particular event from October 8th through 11th, O'Reilly's London AI event, you can see that on the podcast episode for this particular interview. That's going to be at techemergence.com. You can search Lorica, Ben's last name, or if you're listening right now, it's probably a recent post. You can just go to techemergence.com, find it there, learn more about the event itself. So without further ado, I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry. We're speaking with Ben Lorica about what informed questions business leaders should be asking to have a better understanding of case studies and their transferability to their own businesses. Let's dive in. So, Ben, first thing that I wanted to dive into is sort of the education of business leaders who are non-technical. I know that case studies is a big part of what you folks aim to emphasize at events, and certainly I think everybody understands intuitively, oh, geez, as a non-technical person, I should understand case studies. If you're advising a business leader and you have an understanding of what they're working on, like they're building out a new product or starting a new division, what kind of case studies do they have to chase down and what specifics as a non-technical person should they be looking at when they're kind of examining what other people have done? I think that at a high level, I think these technologies, people kind of understand the kind of the basics of the technology, right? So it's AI and analytics are used to improve decision making or enable some form of automation. In the process, you're generating new or additional revenue. So to that end, I'm assuming that that's the kind of problem you're trying to tackle, right? So you're going to enable some form of automation or improve your decision making. Yep. So to that end, I mean, I would say that take a step back and kind of understand what are some of the key technologies? What are their limitations? In the space of AI, I think in many ways, people focus a lot on the modeling. But when you get down to the details, actually, there's a lot more than just building a cool model, right? So there's the infrastructure and hardware, but also more importantly, the data. 
So how much data does the technology that you're looking at need? And if you don't have that data, where can you get data to augment your existing data sets? In many of our surveys, actually, uh, that we've conducted through the years on this, it turns out that one of the key bottlenecks besides data is skills gap. So Yeah, massive, really massive. And so we try to make sure we have sessions to help people understand how some of the leading companies have organized around AI and machine learning. And in particular, how do you organize your team, attract talent, and more importantly, retain talent. So maybe to sum up, just to try to grab some takeaways, and I think what we'll probably do here is use a hypothetical example to make this kind of mentally visible for the listeners. You know, if you're looking at a case study, we're not just looking at, you know, what was the goal and then what was the result? We're looking at certainly what are some of the technologies that could make this possible? So let's say that we're doing something like routing support tickets. So we have an e-commerce site, we get, you know, millions of support tickets every year, maybe every month. And we want to be able to get those to the right people in the shipping department, in the refund kind of department, and some kind of other customer service spaces. Probably it would be worth, I guess, looking at what are the current NLP approaches for sort of categorizing text in that way? What are sort of the strengths and weaknesses of maybe some of the technologies? But then also you had mentioned maybe for any specific case study you're looking at, get a really firm understanding of what kind of data was needed, where that data was kind of taken in from, and an understanding of that pipeline as well. Maybe there's some richness we can add to that in terms of what we as business folks should sink our teeth into when we're looking at something that somebody else has done that we might want to do too. I think that in that specific example you cited, in many situations, the data is already available, right? So, But it's just right now, a lot of the routing, a lot of that work is being done manually. So you might have already an initial corpus of data. And more importantly, that data has been uh, routed properly by human domain expert. Yes, yes, yes. And so you have the basic ingredients of automating that task. You have have labeled data already, right? Yeah, actually. So you can consider that specific example a, a classic case of something that can be automated, right? So first of all, you have to ask yourself, do you have the scale to justify automating this routing problem? Because if you only have like four or five a day. Yeah, it's not going to get it done for you. But once you determine that you have the scale, the next question is, do you have the data in order to move forward with this automation project? Yeah, and that would involve... I guess in this case, when you're saying the data, so the scale might be, okay, we get 2 million support tickets a month. That'll probably be enough to get it done. You know, if we're talking about routing email tickets, maybe 20 categories, we're talking about a classification problem here. But when you said, do we have the data, that might mean, have we stored all these previous responses and what their label is, refund, shipping, et cetera? Like, do we have that corpus somewhere so that we can jumpstart things? Is that what you meant by data being separate from volume? Yes, exactly. And then also, let's say you threw away that historical data, but you've come to the determination that actually this problem has to scale to justify automation or AI technologies, right? Then you can spend some time to actually build that training data set, that label data set over time. 
Yeah, so you could set out to say, all right, well, we haven't stored this in the past, but because this will be worthwhile moving forward, from now on, we should be flooding all of these routed tickets with their proper labels into this kind of a system so that eventually we'll be able to jumpstart one of these NLP tools that we've learned about. You can imagine actually uh, building the system side by side with a human expert, right? Kind of that classic human in the loop situation. And then over time, the amount of tasks that you funnel to the human expert reduces as as the system learns and gets better. Yeah, higher degrees of confidence about what is a refund ticket, what is a shipping ticket, et cetera, et cetera. So you had brought up another important point about case studies that, you know, business leaders listening in who are thinking about anything from a computer vision application for security to some kind of white collar automation with paperwork and automating that stuff should probably think about, which is the talent side of things. So we're not just looking at, you know, what were the technologies? What were the models? What is the data? What kind of data was involved? And then assessing our own data. We also have to look at the bench of skills. A lot of the time, sure, you can have a consultant or a vendor that can come in with some sharp AI chops and help you out. But realistically, what was needed in-house in this case study? These maybe weren't a whole bunch of completely data ignorant folks who brought in a vendor who solved all their problems so long as they gave them the data. There was probably some talent that needed to kind of bridge the subject matter expertise on both sides. What should people poke into for a case study to get a sense of who do I need on staff? What kinds of skills do I need on staff to make a project like this come to life? What should business leaders maybe dig into to make sure that they have that bench ready to deliver on the kind of project they're thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I guess at this stage in the evolution of these technologies, I think you have access to cloud computing services. So you can go that route if you're comfortable using managed services in the cloud, which means you might need less people to maintain infrastructure, right? So particularly these open source projects. If you want to, you could conceivably also use machine learning services in the cloud, which means that you will also need less people to maintain kind of those machine learning libraries in-house. But you probably will still need people on the technical side to make sure that your data pipelines are flowing, that the models are doing what they're supposed to do. Because as you might know, or as your listeners listeners might know, (laughs) there are many libraries these days. And, you know, it's easy to feed data into a library and get some result you still need some experience and training in order to interpret those results. Yeah, and and also, I presume, to understand if a model is maybe drifting in one direction or another based on some arbitrary changes in data, maybe that's taking the conclusions of results of a system. Yeah, Yeah, in many ways, that's actually even a level beyond. So that's kind of when you get serious and deploy something to production, right? So as you hinted, there's this notion of concept drift that over time that your model gets stale, it may need to be retrained, but you need someone who can recognize that. If you're very sophisticated, maybe you can set up some alerts to make sure that you have some automated way of knowing when to intervene. But there's a lot of subtleties in terms of going from a prototype to production. Oh, yeah. And that's where I think having people in-house, data engineers and data scientists, would be something I would want to have access to. Yeah, and maybe, let me know if you would agree with this, Ben, but maybe when a business leader, let's say somebody in banking wants to build a chatbot or 
somebody with a drone company wants to focus on some kind of, you know, identifying vehicles or whatever objects they want to identify, they should be looking sure at the data needs and all the rest of that, but also maybe at data engineer wise, how much involvement and how many people were kind of part of this. And then data scientists wise, how much involvement and how many people were part of this, because maybe in some cases, there's like insane amounts of either data science or data engineering that needs to go into something. And when people are looking at a case study, it might not say that when you get the pretty version of the case study that shows you how great the results were, they're not going to say, and we needed three people in house to be able to figure this mess out in the first place to be able to get it smooth and to be able to keep it from drifting. It sounds like maybe that's something worth looking under the hood at when people are examining case studies that maybe they wouldn't think of initially. Let me know if you would critique that idea. I'm just thinking out loud with you. The move from a pilot to production is something that is more complicated than some people might think, depending on the mission criticality of the application. Right? Yep, so, yep. so you can imagine uh, building a machine learning application that is not too mission critical and you can deploy it to production, right? Honestly, uh, these days, there's even a new job role that people have been talking about called the machine learning engineer, which kind of bridges that gap. Uh, someone who specializes more on productionizing this technology. So what we're finding in our surveys is that the companies that have much more experience in AI and machine learning tend to have this role in-house. Yeah. Sometimes if data science is part of their DNA or it's been there for a long time, they have people who have experience, not just doing AI for a Coursera course or you know PhD program at Carnegie Mellon, but they have experience doing AI in a production environment where users around the world need to access it and it needs to not screw up. As it turns out, that's quite different than an experimental environment. Maybe you could go a bit into why that's critical. I think a lot of people maybe assume if you can get the models right and you can get it to work, it works. But as it turns out, if you have users accessing it, there are a whole bunch of additional concerns. Business people often are not thinking about this. How would you brief people on what those critical differences are between getting the model right or making it work in the back office versus making it work as part of your recommendation engine when millions of people are buying products on your e-commerce website, for example? Let me answer your uh, question at a higher level instead of being more technical, right? I've been kind of starting to collect a lot of these challenges under the umbrella of risk. In other words, once you have machine learning models and you start using and deploying them in mass in your organization, there's a certain amount of risks involved, right? So what are some of these risks? One, your uh, models may go bad, kind of the breaking bad scenario for machine learning, <laughs> right? So it, they may start uh, exhibiting bias, right? So exhibiting strange behavior where they start discriminating between uh, groups and populations of users, right? So inadvertently, or maybe because maybe in the training process, your data was not representative of your user base. Yep. There's the challenge of maybe your uh, models are leaking user privacy. Right. Yeah, so. can you can you put a tangible example on that, Ben? I think people understand conceptually, ooh, data science, got to be careful about people's data. But can you put a finger on that for us? So here's an example that's actually not even a data breach, and it's not even machine learning. I think when we talk about data privacy, we usually think about, oh, it's a break-in or a hack. But it turns out a lot of data privacy challenges are internal. It's just 
control and permissions over people having access to data they shouldn't have. Right. So I think there's a famous example. I believe they corrected it quickly where I read an article where Lyft kind of notified the press where uh, people in the company had access to user data. So they would query friends, right? So friends. Oh. Data. Yeah, yeah. Things like that. When it comes to machine learning and privacy, you can imagine one of the largest sources of data these days is the mobile phone, right? So a lot of data that people might consider private, like location data, metadata on phone calls and things like that can be leaked. There's also adversarial risk, right? So you can imagine machine learning being attacked and then subsequently misbehaving, right? Yeah. Okay. So now as an example of this, there's I'm trying to think of a good one, but maybe in a machine vision system, it's possible to kind of scramble the pictures on a certain set of images or something and totally confuse a system to thinking that a chair is a carpet or something. There's all these very famous examples of how kind of easy it is if you understand AI to really flub with an existing system. So you're talking about a competitor or a malicious agent maybe feeding the wrong kind of samples or doing the wrong kinds of user behaviors that are going to force an algorithm to drift or screw up. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. We default to some of these more recent examples that are covered by the media, like computer vision. But really, there's a lot of much more mundane examples, like click fraud or uh, flooding a product review with fake reviews, right? So, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess those would count just as much when you think about it. Maybe a, a last topic worth Potential. Oh, so, so, yeah, so, go ahead, go ahead. I guess to emphasize, yeah, so yeah. when you think of machine learning and you deploy it to production, we are now entering an age as we have more and more of these models in production where we have to have all these considerations beyond business metrics and machine learning metrics, right? So Yeah. So these are concerns that maybe business people will have to accept sooner rather than later. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the good thing is that the machine learning community of practitioners and researchers are also aware and engaged in this issue. So each of the things that I talked about, there's research projects addressing them, right? So people are trying to develop privacy-preserving machine learning. Yeah, yeah. So machine learning methods that are robust and able to withstand adversarial attacks. Bless their hearts, those noble scientists. That is not an easy problem to solve in many cases, but super, indeed, yeah. Super interesting. In oh, yeah. Ways. Really interesting and, and critical for so many businesses where you're dealing with credit cards or bank statements or people's faces or whatever. In summary, Ben, I'm going to kind of put a nutshell around some of the ideas that you've sort of flagged as critical ideas of import. When someone's looking at a case study, let's not just look at the results here. Let's not just look at what the tool was. You mentioned a few things, and I want to make sure I'm not missing anything. So I'll summarize, and then you let me know if there's anything to wrap up on. One, what are the various technologies and approaches to that problem, and what are their pros and cons? So this is maybe one of them featured in this case study, but uh, you know, what's the possibility space here? Maybe why did they decide on this one? Secondly, you talked about, do we have the volume of data coming in to even do something like this? And also, do we have an existing corpus that we could actually start with? Or are we going to have to build from scratch? Those are two very different situations. Sometimes, Or, or, it's, or even before that, actually, do, oh, we have the, do we have the scale to justify yeah, yeah, yeah. even thinking about using machine learning? Yep. So do we have the scale for machine learning in the first place? And even if we do, okay, well, do we need to start building the labeled set or do we already have it? Maybe that's another concern. Then you also had flagged as a point of interest get an understanding of what the data engineering 
necessities were for this project and what the data science necessities were for this project, and maybe even what specific skills were needed to bring it to kind of a production level, which is kind of a whole nother thing. So really look not just at how many PhDs were involved, but really who was doing what related to data science to breathe life into this. Those were three things that you kind of flagged as important in addition to risk. Anything else I'm missing? Understand that machine learning is not just a model. It starts from data collection all the way to deploying the model to production, all the data preparation and data cleaning you have to do along the way, data augmentation if you need to add more data. Also understand that there's a lot of considerations nowadays, right? So user privacy, security, ethics that come into play. So the end-to-end machine learning application, I think, is something that requires much more than modeling skills. That's why a lot of people are focused on how to organize teams and how to build teams that will support all of these needs. 100%. And those of you who are listening in who are longtime AI and industry listeners, you should know damn well that we're talking about more than a model here and that business people and folks who can organize teams, orchestrate data and determine needs are going to be critical to breathe life kind of for AI projects into businesses. Ben, this has been an important reminder and kind of showcase of things to bear in mind as people are looking out into the possibility space of use cases, and hopefully they'll be able to get a lot out of it. So thank you so much for being able to share your insights. I appreciate you being here on the AI and Industry Podcast. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Figella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week. 